0: In your Bibles, please, to First Peter, chapter 1, verse 17. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to to every man's work past the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times For you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Well, I broke a little bit of tradition today, and I have two quotations from you, or for you, rather than simply one today. The first is from the Reverend Samuel Rutherford, the second from Edward During, a 16th century Puritan, Rutherford first, by faith only we are united to Christ, possessed of him, Christ dwelling in us, living in him by faith, receiving Christ, having Christ, married to Christ, eating and drinking Christ by faith, coming to him as to a living stone, abiding in him as branches in a tree. Now, if we were justified before we believed, We should have an union by the vital act of faith before we be justified. And so we should live before we live and be new creatures while we are yet in the state of sin and heirs of wrath. This justification without faith casteth loose the covenant. I will be your God. And then Edward During, To eat and drink Christ as I have said, to come unto Christ, to believe in Christ. And the fruit of this is, he that cometh unto him, he shall not hunger. Again, he that believeth in him shall not thirst any more. This, dearly beloved, is that great fruit, that unspeakable benefit, that endless mercy, which they taste and eat of, that labor and are laden and come unto Christ. My tongue cannot express it. Your ears cannot hear it. Our hearts cannot imagine it. What is that, faith, that fullness of joy that springeth out of this fountain? So those two quotations to help us in our introduction today. I'll remind you since it's been two weeks that we've been here in 1 Peter again. That we're focusing our attention now at the end of this brief five verse passage on verse 21. Where Peter will begin, Who by him do believe in God. And we've taken that occasion to speak of saving faith. And after a very long course of looking at various things, then we looked at three, those three what we would call aspects or facets of saving faith. We said they are knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. And there are Latin terms that correspond to that, you'll remember. And we looked at knowledge, and we looked at assent, and we have been looking now at trust. And in order to explain this portion of saving faith, and remember we said we don't want to separate these things. They are all of a piece. We want them, although we consider them separately, we don't say I have one and not the other. right? Um, we said that we're going to look at this verb trust or trusting in Christ and, and how it is presented to us in Scripture. And we have been using those, what we called verbs of motion, that unite us to Jesus Christ. Not simply propositional truth about Christ, which is absolutely necessary and to which we must give our assent. But we must go beyond mere mental assent, which is what we say in the larger catechism, right? Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby he, being, being convinced of his sin and misery, and the and the inability of himself and all other creatures to recover him uh, out of his lost condition, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God. It's more than assent. We have confessed it to be more than assent. And it is more than a cent because there is some controversy over that these days. We, we have been long in explaining this from the scripture. There are those we, we said they are Sandominian. And by Sandominian, what they, what they mean to do is, is put away trust. There are others who we would agree with that merge trust and assent together that you can't have one without the other that they're all of a piece and while we want to consider them separately as our puritan fathers did we do want to bring them together and so we've used those verbs of motion that unite us to christ and what have we looked at so far These are all scriptural terms. We said receiving Christ, coming to Christ, following Christ as is used in John 10, drawing near to Christ, abiding in Christ, resting in Christ, rolling upon Christ, and looking to Christ. Those are all scriptural terms by which we are united to Christ in these, if you will, verbs of motion. That we simply don't hold ourselves aloof and say, I assent to those things. No, rather we are pressed forward to Jesus Christ himself. Believing the right things about him. Assenting to them and then being united to him. And I have two more today. And in these last two then, we will move on to the next portion of our study. Which will be to look at counterfeits of faith. Counterfeits. Okay, so two more today. They are... Uh, from, the, from the lips of Christ, eating and drinking, and then from the lips of the prophet Hosea, knowing the Lord. So we had both in Samuel Rutherford and in Edward During, these, this statement about eating and drinking. So turn with me, if you will, to the, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. A lengthy chapter, no doubt. We, we, we won't read the whole thing, but we do want to start in verse 49. John 6, 49. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? It's hard to understand. It's a a hard saying, as a matter of fact. uh, As we read a little bit later on in the chapter, there were many, because of that saying, they said, uh, we can't follow Jesus anymore. It's too hard. He's, he's speaking in ways that are too off-putting to us. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood. This, this is gross. This is not good theology. Jesus, what are you doing? Where have you gone in your teaching? Well, let's remember the context. Maybe that will help us a little bit. You'll remember earlier in John chapter 6 that Jesus has fed 5,000. He's walked across the water. They found him on the other side of the sea. They came to him and said, Master, how did you get here? We saw that there weren't any boats. Certainly, it must have been something miraculous. How did you get here? And Jesus will say to them, You saw me. Sorry, you seek me. Not because you saw the miracles. Not even because you Heard the teaching, if I can add that uh, interpretation as well, but because you ate of the bread and were full. You were filled up. It says in the gospel records, if you compare all of them, that they were ready to make him king when they found out he could make bread out of nothing. With this guy as king, we'll never have to work again. All we do is you know, show up at the palace. Bread, please. Right? That's the kind of king that they wanted and that's why Jesus withdrew when they were about to make him king. And so that's when Jesus will begin this about labor not for the bread which perisheth. Beloved, immediately then when he says the bread which perisheth we understand that he's moving in a spiritual direction. We're not left to wonder about that although a little bit later He will say in the same chapter, the words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. The flesh profiteth nothing. Even miraculous bread to flesh is unprofitable. Right? Think with me about that for a moment. Isn't that the very illustration that Jesus will use? Your fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness and they died. They drank water out of the rock that appeared for them miraculously. And where are they today? Those same fathers were unbelievers at Kadesh Barnea and did not enter into the land. They did not enter into the rest of God. It's not bread. Even miraculous bread. Even bread that you might call spiritual bread. Right? Like Paul calls it. They ate of the same spiritual bread. They drank of the same spiritual drink. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Yet with many of them God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Even miraculous bread can be received carnally, beloved. According to the flesh. Jesus here then is moving them away From their overly active appetites. For their concern about bread. Why are you so concerned about bread? Jesus will say. He will speak to his disciples. They're on the ship. You'll remember this. And he says to them. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they say. They reason with one another. Oh no. He's chiding us because we forgot to bring bread. And Jesus will say, why are you so concerned about bread? We're not talking about bread here. We're talking about the evil, the sin of the Pharisees and the scribes. Beloved, can we admit this? Very often we're just too concerned about bread. And in bread we might think of all of our earthly supply and comfort. We just spend too much time with that. And so Jesus makes that thing that is so very dear to us the focus of what he's talking about here. As you rely, in a sense, you know, immediately upon bread to sustain you, Jesus will use himself as spiritual substance and sustenance. And so he will put eating and drinking of him as faith itself notice that he uses the word what did we say um, uh, in our translation here um, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and i in him that's the greek word meno and most often that is translated especially in john 15 as abide abideth in me and we've already used abiding, haven't we, as one of, those, one of those motion words that draw us to Christ so that we partake of the vitality of the vine, right? So we abide in him. Jesus will make abiding in him and eating and drinking him the same thing. And you can see the connection, can't you? What happens if a, if a branch is severed from the vine? it withers, it dies up, right? It, it dries up, its leaves curl, and they turn brown, and they blow away. And that piece of wood, if it's a piece of a vine, if it's light enough, it will blow away too. Because it's not connected to the root and fatness and vitality of the vine. The scripture uses such metaphors very often. There's a, there's a metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses, right, in the, in the last chapter of that three-chapter argument, 9, 10, and 11, of uh, 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 what happens, what's going to happen to the Jews. He's going to use the analogy of an olive tree, that we must be severed from one tree and grafted in to another. We want to be severed out of that wild, natural olive tree and grafted in. To that spiritual olive tree and partake of the root and fatness of Christ. It's these same kinds of metaphors then that ancient Near Easterners would have understood. We look at that and we say, ew, that's a hard metaphor. How can we follow after that? Well, we can follow after it because it is indeed the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And... These words of his drive us beyond mere assent. Can we assent without eating? Of course. Some would say, no, that's not possible. They would make assent and eating the same. Well, perhaps that's true. We don't want to disagree with with everyone just to be disagreeable. But still, it remains. Jesus Christ himself uses eating and drinking And he puts that for abiding in him or believing in him. We must then come to Christ to partake of his goodness. Come to Christ partaking of that that nourishment and vitality that only he can offer. So Christ explodes then resting on manna. They, They say to him, remember what they said to Christ? Okay, so you're claiming here to be our Messiah. We get that. So then what sign are you going to show us? If you're our Messiah, then show us a sign. You know, Moses, our leader, he showed us a sign. You should be able to, too. If you're that second Moses, if you're that Messiah that would come. Moses gave us manna. What are you doing? Jesus will say, Moses didn't give you that manna. My father now gives you the true manna. As he gave that manna of old, those folks ate and died. This manna is a manna that if someone eats it, they will never die. This spiritual nourishment, this spiritual food that I will give you, myself, my flesh, my blood, that is my broken body and my shed blood, my atonement work. If you receive that, If you come to me eating and drinking, you will live forever. If you come to me, ew, gross. If you come to me, that's, that's that's a bridge too far. I'm satisfied with Jesus Christ died for sinners instead of Jesus Christ died to nourish me with eternal life. And so the metaphor then is very clear. Jesus uses eating and drinking because eating and drinking is so very near to us, so very dear to us. And it's an illustration they were familiar with because they knew the history of their parents in the wilderness and the eating and the drinking that they did there and how that was a spiritual eating and drinking as well as a physical eating and drinking. They were sustained spiritually as they learned of Christ through the sacrifices, as they learned of Christ through the water, as they learned of Christ through the shedding of blood, as they learned of Christ through the the sacrifice of animals and those animals were from time to time under various sacrifices eaten. We remember don't we when Saul was going to misuse the sacrificial system, King Saul. That he went to the Amalekites on an errand and that errand was destroy them root and branch. And what did he do? He brought back the animals and the king of Amalek. You remember that? And what did Saul use as an excuse? Well, we brought the the best of the animals back so that we can sacrifice, he's speaking to Samuel, to the Lord your God. Of course, what would that have meant? Let's think about it for a moment. That would have meant a feast for the people. They would have eaten of those. Those would have been peace offerings, thank offerings, right? And those thank offerings, everyone partook of. And so it was a little bit self-serving at that point, wasn't it? And it wasn't eating by faith because faith would have been to obey what the prophet had said. What God had said. Root and branch, every animal gone. You will not profit carnally from this. You will rather feast upon my goodness as I give you victory over your enemies. You see the difference between feasting and feasting there. And the same thing is true here. Jesus is inviting us to a feast, not of bread and wine, but as the prophet will say, of truly the fat things upon the leaves, of wine well refined. That spiritual food, that spiritual drink. This comes up in John chapter 4, doesn't it, as well? Turn over to John chapter 4. In a couple of different ways, we, we talked about this a moment ago with regard to water, right? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water that is out of that Jacob's well shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Remember the disciples always concerned about the next meal. At the end of that passage. After the woman leaves and goes back into town. They, they ask him. Uh, verse 31. In the meanwhile his disciples prayed him saying. Master eat. But he said unto them I have meat to eat. That ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another. Hath any man brought him ought to eat? And what does Jesus say? My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. You see the metaphor and how it's used. As Jesus rests upon the goodness of His Father and has complete confidence in everything that His Father has taught Him and commanded Him and will drive Him into doing. So then Jesus says, I have that same kind of meat and drink for you, beloved. Is your meat, your drink, to do the will of Jesus Christ? Is it to come to Him and to dine upon His spiritual goodness? Or are we still concerned about bread? Well, we must learn to turn away from these world's goods that we may indeed have and feast upon Christ. Uh, This kind of metaphor is used really throughout Scripture. Let's look at just a few Old Testament examples of it. From the prophet Isaiah, what some would call the evangelical prophet, if you will. Isaiah chapter 55. Verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, Come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy, and eat, yea. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul Delight itself in fatness, incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. What a great gospel passage. And notice we have the same distinction in there that we see in John chapter 6. We have true meat and false meat. And the prophet is very explicit. He asks the people why do you spend your money for that which is not bread or cannot satisfy or cannot sustain? And then he says here's how you get that real, that true bread. Hearken diligently unto me because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Beloved did you notice also at the beginning that we must buy, but we must buy without price. Who ever heard of a buying without price? May I set before you the twofold nature of the gospel? Remember that ye were not redeemed, as we already studied in First Peter chapter one, with gold and silver from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. There was a purchase made, beloved but you didn't have the funds. The purchase that was made is made yours, so you come and buy without money and without price. Did you hear that in the evangelical prophet? Why would he use the word buy or purchase? Because it was necessary in the justice of God that your liberty should be purchased, but it wasn't you that purchased it. You come and receive freely. Come ye, buy and eat without money and without price. That true bread, that true meat, that true drink. So what does Jesus offer then here as that true meat and drink? Himself, His very self. Now scholars are divided, Reformed scholars especially are divided as to whether or not John 6 relates to the Lord's Supper or not. I, find my, I have found myself over the years going to this side of that and then that side of that. As I've said it, this side of that and then that side of it. I'm satisfied by saying, I think, that that we are to make use of John 6 to understand that the food that we come to partake of at the Lord's Supper is not bread and wine. But it is that spiritual food of the very body and blood of Christ. Or we might say that that is a part for the whole of Christ's atoning Work And so we come, as it were, to believe in Him and to confess our faith before Him and to, and to renew that faith before Him and to advance that faith before Him. We come eating and drinking Jesus Christ. And in that way then, although that sounds dissonant to our ears, still that is what we come doing at the Supper of the Lord, where we think of our Lord Jesus Christ Christ, Crucified, broken body, that is, that the judgment of God must come down, that there is a purchase made for sinners. And that purchase is the very life of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Christ. And secondly, that there is indeed that blood without which there is no remission of sins, that by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ we are drawn to God Himself, separated out from the world. Remember, Remember that there are two places in Scripture where the word, quote, blood of the covenant is used. The first place is in Exodus chapter 24, where Moses will read in the hearing of God's people the book of the covenant. Exodus chapter 20, 21, 22, and 23. He's going to read those four chapters to them. And they will say, all that the Lord has commanded we will do and be obedient. We will take him for our God and we will follow him. And the Lord says to them, you will be a particular, a peculiar people unto me. And in testimony to that then, Moses slays the animals, all of which are types of Jesus Christ. And then he collects that blood at, that, at the head of every tribe there. He collects that blood and he sprinkles the hyssop and he, uh, so he takes the hyssop and dips it and he sprinkles the entire nation and he says, This is the blood of the covenant which Jehovah your God makes with you this day. Jesus will say, This cup is the new covenant or new testament in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so that is for the remission of sins. And it is to separate out a people unto himself. It is indeed a verb of motion to draw us to Jesus Christ. By virtue of his cross work. Of his redemptive work. You, you know the term redemption, right? That is a purchasing of something that has been held. We were held. Slaves to sin. Under the prince of the power of the air as we read earlier. But we have been redeemed. We have been bought. We are bought with a price. Come ye, buy, without money and without price. So we believe on Jesus Christ. But it is more than simply... um, Uh, that he's a good guy, that he's a great teacher. No, when Jesus says eating and drinking, here we are brought into communion with him, as Paul will say, in the likeness of his death. That we might also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we come to Christ then, we come to him eating and drinking, believing that what he did at Calvary is sufficient for us. That it is the, the finality of the purchase. That there's nothing else required, beloved. There's nothing that we add. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Those were purchased by Christ. That they might be freely bought by us. Without money. And without price. This is what it means to believe in Jesus Christ in this latest verb of motion that we're studying here. For the sake of time, we're going to move ahead, although there's much more we could say. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 2, for the last of our metaphors in saving faith. For the sake of time we'll not read verses 1 through 13, but verses 1 through 13 if I might summarize them paint a very bleak picture for the people of God. That's where we hear those two terms lo ami and lo ruama. Lo ami means you're not my people. That's God speaking to Israel. Lo ruama, I will not be merciful to you anymore no mercy and no people of mine that's the first section there but notice also that there's at least the beginnings of overtures of grace there even in the midst of the lord saying lo ami and lo ruama i know i'm going back to chapter 1 there but still notice in verse 6 the Lord says, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall. She shall not f- find her paths. She'll try, in other words, to follow after her lovers, but not overtake them. Though she has been unfaithful to me. So that takes us down really through verse 13. The people had become Baal worshippers, had they not. And remember that the word Baal means master. Master. Okay, now we begin our reading in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and thou shalt call me no more Baali, for I will take away the names of the Baalim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. And with the creeping things of the ground and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth. And I will make them to lie down safely and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. By the time we get down to verse uh, 20 and we hear him say, thou shalt know the Lord, may I say it this way, we know what he's talking about there. It's not simply knowledge at that point. We could run through the scriptures, but I believe you know them. Let me just remind you of what they say over and over and over again in scripture. We hear of a husband and a wife and it will say, the man Knew his wife and she begat whoever it was. The knowledge that we're speaking of here, beloved, is not the knowledge of, okay, I've heard his name. Okay, I know some things about him. Okay, I know who that is. It's the knowledge of a betrothed coming to the consummation. That's what's being spoken of here, beloved. No more will the people of Israel refer to their gods as Ba'ali, my masters. Instead, they will turn to the Lord and they will say, "Is she my husband. That's what it means. And this is what the Lord uses here for that metaphor of faith. Beloved, can I say it this way? It could not be described in a more intimate way. You see that, you understand that, you know that. It is clear, and yet, this particular metaphor is replete throughout the scriptures. That the Lord is a husband to his people. And by husband, we bring it home here because we know that sometimes husbands and wives, you know, we we can think perversely in that. We can think of a husband that refuses to do his duty, to provide and to protect and to take care of, and to, and to house, and clothe, and, and all of those things that we expect, and to lead, and to guide, and all of that. But certainly we could impute none of that to our Heavenly Father. But note that nothing is left out of the metaphor. That's the point. That we have this intimate union with God through Christ, that we call upon Him. We call upon our Lord Jesus Christ as our Head and Husband, that we might worship him, that we might believe in him, that we might be drawn near to him. Certainly this is more than assent. You'll remember, we don't have time to look it up, but you'll remember, Eleazar, the servant of Abraham, goes forth and he finds Rebekah. Remember? It's a great scene. Here's Bethuel and Laban, and they're wanting to delay Eleazar on the way home. And they keep holding him up and holding him Oh, look at that. <laughs> it's already afternoon. You don't want to start out on your journey now. Spend another night. So he, sp- he spends a night. Right? And then he gets up the next day. Oh, let's, let's eat and drink. And let's, let's celebrate these, this union between these two. Although Isaac isn't there, right? Let's celebrate this union between these two. Stay one." And he says, hey, I'm on an errand here. Forbid me not. I need to go back. And so they turn to Rebecca and they say, Wilt thou go with this man? And she says, Can I put it in the context of our current study? I assent. I assent. What happens beyond that? She actually gets on the camel Travels back to the homeland. And what does it say? Here's Isaac meditating in the field. Right? And he looks and he sees a caravan coming. And she looks and she sees a man meditating in the field. And she turns to Eleazar and she says, Who's that? Eleazar says, That's my master. And so she puts on her veil, comes down off her camel. And Isaac... And Rebecca, well, it says that he took her into his mother's tent and he was comforted after the death of his mother. Remember that? And thou shalt know the Lord. Beloved, we must draw near to God in that way. We must draw near to God for everything that we need. For that complete supply. And we must submit ourselves to him. This is a part of what it means to believe. And so give me a few moments. I'm going to leave the metaphor and go straight to uses so we we can end. Although we could go on week after week on these kinds of metaphors as they exist in the scriptures. I want you to remember that in Revelation chapter 19 verse 7 and in chapter 21 and verse 2. What do we hear? That the church is arrayed. Like a bride adorned for her husband. This is who we are, beloved. We are indeed a husband, sorry, a wife to the great God of heaven. He has purchased us, He's paid the dowry price. He has done everything to bring us to Himself. He has brought us to Himself. And one day we will finally leave this strange land. And dwell with him forever in his. At this present time. Our Lord Jesus Christ is still our head and husband. But we await the perfection of that. In glory. But we have the first fruits of that even today. So in the, in the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, if, if you have the time today. I would I would counsel you to read Jeremiah chapter 3 verses 1 through 20. You'll hear about this metaphor of the Lord being a husband to his people. And how he continues on and continues on. You understand how this husband relationship that we talk about is covenantal. We talk about the, quote, marriage covenant. This is an expression that that the Lord uses that we would be married to him in the covenant of grace. And so we come to Him for everything. Provision, protection, uniqueness, and exclusivity. He only has one wife, doesn't He? With love and His blessing, the obedience of the bride to her husband, in true confidence of His love, all the best things we could imagine about husbands. This is the Lord our God. We remember in Catacles 8, 5, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness leaning on her beloved, rolling upon him, resting upon him? Another word for faith. Right? Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his able commentary uh, in Hosea, sees, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her to this particular... uh, Ceremony of of the wedding when the bride and the bridegroom after they were married would leave and go out into the fields together and they would come in and she would be leaning leaning upon him so beloved are we resting and leaning upon our great God well let's go ahead and make a couple of uses and then we'll we will close up our study here So we have seen differences between seeing and believing, between assent which only goes to the seeing and understanding, and assenting to Christ as God and as Savior, to drawing near unto him, and all of these metaphors that unite us to Christ. Many words of motion toward Christ, and what we have done in that is we have taken this out of the mystical and ephemeral, haven't we? And we are now given something from the scriptures to examine our own faith. Am I resting upon Christ? Have I come to him? Have I received him? Am I leaning upon him? Am I have I rolled the eternal disposition of my soul upon him alone? Is he my head and husband? Do I look to him as the eyes of a servant look to the eyes or to the hands of a master, do I feed upon him alone? Is he my spiritual nourishment, and so on? Now we might not find perfection in any of these verbs of motion, but that's because, as we have said before, faith in Christ is not that by which we are saved; it is the instrument. We're saved by the grace of God. And so it's not our faith that saves us, it's the object of our faith that saves us, beloved. We rest upon Christ. And so when we talk about faith, we can have weak faith and we can have strong faith. We can talk out of 1 John chapter 2 about little children whose sins are forgiven for his name's sake, young men who have overcome the wicked one, and we can talk about those fathers who have. Known him who is from the beginning. But at every point, that is a species of saving faith. Saving faith is as shallow as it needs to be so that a child may wade in. And as deep as it needs to be so that an elephant may swim. As the old metaphor goes. Because it's not the strength of our faith, it's the object of it. Resting and terminating and uniting us to Jesus Christ as we look to him, as we come to him, as we receive him, and so on. As we turn to him and turn from all others. Beloved, this is saving faith and it's nothing short of that. It's not simply praying a prayer. It's not this easy believism that runs rampant in the churches today so that we add Jesus to the galaxy of things that we we rest on that are our supplies, that provide for us. Like it is said in chapter 2 of Hosea, I will seek after my others. I will seek after my other suitors, Israel says. And the Lord says, nope, I'm going to hedge her way up with thorns so that she can't, and then I will allure her and draw her to myself that she will be left with me alone. So we don't simply add Jesus like we add a hobby or a skill or a recreation or avocation or even a vocation. He's everything. He's nothing short of it. And all of these verbs of motion that we have mined out of the scriptures. We haven't made these things up. They've come to us from the Bible. This is God calling us to true saving faith in Christ. And to turn away from the false ones. Completely. So beloved, let us hear then all of these words. Let us be drawn to Christ himself. As we close this portion of our study then, please let me encourage you with a few things. We have seen some great depth. We've been called upon to examine our own faith. This is a good thing. As we have said, so we repeat, it is not the depth of our knowledge, the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. Resting, rolling, eating, drinking, abiding, whether a full mature embrace Or from Luke chapter 8, 43, where the woman says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Right? There are some that come to Christ and it's both arms like that. Others, just the hem of his garment. But notice it was the hem of his garment that she was after. She knew that she had nothing in anyone else. In Matthew chapter 17, we've seen that even a little faith moves a mountain. And what is that mountain that is moved? Again, we have to turn to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 to figure that out. Who is this? Or what is this great mountain? Zerubbabel, before thee it shall become a plain. Right? The advancement of the kingdom of God, it goes no matter what's ahead of it. Why? Why? Because it is that faith of a mustard seed that moves mountains. That's why. Do you say, Pastor, I have little faith. Okay, but is it in Christ? Is it in Him? You say, Pastor, I have great faith. And so, I'm comfortable. I ask you, is it in Christ? Because if it's not in Him, it doesn't matter how great it is. No, it must be in him. So we might ask ourselves then, have I been driven out of myself to Christ? Is he more important to me than my daily food? Is my meat to do his will? Is this in him where my soul has found its rest and repose? Is it him upon whom I feast daily, resting in his supply? Upon whom will I be standing when I appear at the last great assize, will my judge also be my husband? Or will he be my enemy? It must be upon him. Have I, like Paul, although perhaps not with the same strength, but with the same species of faith, cons- committed the eternal disposition of my soul to him? What did Paul say? I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And what had Paul committed to him? His whole self. There's nothing short of that, beloved. Finally then, let us give all diligence to have and to increase and to strengthen that faith in Christ. So that if faith comes by hearing the word of God, then let us gladly hear the word of God. Romans 10, 17. If self-examination, whether we be in the faith, is a means of persevering in faith for good, then let us examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. If asking the Lord to increase our weak faith is something that we have good example of in Scripture, then, Mark 9, 24 and 5, let us ask. If recognizing our destitute estate is consistent with saving faith, then let us rejoice in our weakness and destitution and poverty of spirit, rather than being fat and happy on the way to destruction. If acknowledging and resting in the sovereign power of Christ, and our own unworthiness and his glory alone is a sign of great faith, then let us do all we can to have that sign upon us. Matthew 8, 8 through 10. If the knowledge of our own sins unto proper forgiveness of our brother is a help to our faith, then let us forgive one another. Luke 17, 1 through 5. Remember what the disciples said? Peter says, Oh Lord, if my brother comes to me seven times in a day and asks, asks for forgiveness... I'll forgive him. And I'm sure Peter's thinking, whew, that's deep. And Jesus says seven times. I tell you, 70 times seven. And the disciples to a man say, Lord, increase our, not forgiveness, increase our faith. And finally, if hearing the word of the Lord and turning away from our eyes and human experience and expectation is said to be that strong faith. Then let us follow the example of Abraham, who staggered not at the promise of God, not considering his own body good as dead, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Let us walk by faith and not by sight. Let us pray for one another then, that the Lord would give saving faith, we understand it is his gift, and that he would increase it. That he would deepen it. That he would broaden it. And that he would use all of the means of grace to do so. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto thee now and we ask that thou wouldst increase our faith. That if there are some here that are yet in their sins, that thou wouldst give saving faith. That thou wouldst. Help us to rest in that we are in thy hands. And that thou art the potter, we the clay. So, Lord, do with us as thou dost see fit. We thank thee, Lord, that we have confidence in thy mercy in Christ. And that we are by these verbs of motion drawn into union with him. We thank thee for him who knew no sin, who became sin for us who is a high priest touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, who is able to save to the uttermost them that come near to him by faith. And so, Lord, we pray that we might draw near, receive, rest, roll, eat, drink, look, and know our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee, Father, for the clarity of thy word. And we ask, Lord, that it will not be lost upon us. Open our eyes, open our minds to understand, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.